Good morning, and thank you for joining us on 5 at 8. It's Saturday, July 1st, 2023, and here's Linda Carlisle and Mark Overman with today's top news. In this episode, we will talk about a scathing report by the U.S. State Department criticizing the handling of the Afghanistan evacuation, Russian President Vladimir Putin's efforts to regain control after the Wagner Group mutiny, President Joe Biden's new student debt relief plan, Australia classifying psychedelics as medicines, and Israel's spy agency claiming responsibility for an operation in Iran to capture a hit squad leader. Stay tuned for these top news stories of the day. Story number one. A scathing report by the U.S. State Department, as reported by The Guardian, criticized the handling of the 2021 evacuation from Afghanistan, blaming both President Joe Biden and his predecessor Donald Trump for their decisions to withdraw troops. The report also reflected poorly on Secretary of State Antony Blinken, highlighting the department's failure to expand its crisis management task force and the lack of a senior diplomat overseeing the crisis response. The review praised the performance of American embassy personnel, but criticized the lack of planning and coordination during the evacuation operation. The report's critical findings were not included in a White House report released earlier. The evacuation saw desperate Afghans trying to enter Kabul airport and a suicide bombing by the Islamic State that killed 13 U.S. service members and over 150 Afghans. Will you look at this, Linda? The State Department's report on the evacuation from Afghanistan is out. And boy, it doesn't look good for either Trump or Biden. I mean, the failure to expand the crisis task force, the lack of a senior diplomat overseeing the crisis response, it's all a mess. Yes, Mark, I've seen the report. It's indeed concerning. But let's remember that the situation was extremely complex. The speed of the Taliban's advance, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the reduced security due to the troop drawdown all contributed to the difficulties faced. I get that, Linda, but it's the lack of foresight that gets me. The report points out that there was insufficient senior-level consideration of worst-case scenarios. That's not something you want to hear when it comes to emergency evacuations. I see where you're coming from, Mark. However, the White House report suggests that there were extensive meetings and tabletop exercises exploring evacuation scenarios. They apparently planned for contingencies worse than the worst-case predictions. Well, Linda, those plans clearly didn't pan out, did they? The report says it was unclear which senior official had the lead, and no clear decisions regarding the universe of at-risk Afghans to be included in the evacuation when it started. That's a lot of uncertainty in a crisis situation. Mark, I agree that there were lapses, but we must also consider the pressure to not take steps that could signal a loss of confidence in the Kabul government. It's a delicate balance. The report does acknowledge that the American embassy personnel performed admirably under difficult conditions. Sure, Linda. But at the end of the day, the consequences of these decisions were serious. The Afghan government's viability and security were compromised. It's a stark reminder that in crisis situations, there's no room for ambiguity or indecisiveness. Absolutely, Mark. It's a tough lesson learned. Moving forward... It's crucial that we improve planning, coordination, and communication in such situations. The implications of getting it wrong are just too high. Story number two. News source, the BBC, reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin has made a series of public appearances in an effort to regain control and stability following the recent mutiny by the Wagner Group. Putin addressed the nation, praising the Russian public, officials, armed forces, and security services for their unity in defeating the rebellion. 
He distinguished between the leaders of the mutiny and regular Wagner fighters, presenting himself as the man who averted major bloodshed. Putin then delivered a speech to troops, emphasizing the importance of the military in stopping a civil war. In a surprising move, he also interacted closely with crowds in Dagestan, hugging and posing for photos, possibly to demonstrate his support and regain confidence after the mutiny. Finally, at a business conference, Putin received a standing ovation and was seen doodling on an interactive whiteboard, showcasing his control and confidence. Despite these positive images, the long-term consequences of the mutiny and Putin's response remain uncertain. Are we really surprised by Putin's response to the Wagner Group mutiny? I mean, the guy's a seasoned political player. He knows how to handle a crisis. Sure, the Wagner Group posed a significant threat, but Putin's been in power for over two decades. He's seen it all. I see your point, Mark. But it's not just about how long he's been in power. It's about how he's used that power. Putin's response to this crisis was to make a deal with the mercenaries instead of holding them accountable. That's not leadership. That's capitulation. Well, Linda, you could argue that he was being pragmatic. He avoided a potentially bloody confrontation and managed to neutralize the threat. And let's not forget, he's also been very active in reassuring the public and showing that he's still in control. Yes, but at what cost? He's essentially given a free pass to a group that rebelled against the state. And his public appearances and speeches, they're all about image control. It's classic autocratic behavior. It's not about addressing the real issues. It's about maintaining power. Well, Linda, you're not wrong about the image control, but isn't that part of politics, especially in a crisis? The leader needs to reassure the public, show strength and maintain stability. Putin's doing just that. Mark, maintaining stability is important, but not at the expense of justice and accountability. The Wagner Group's actions were a direct challenge to Putin's authority and the state. By not holding them accountable, he's sending a message that such actions can go unpunished. Story number three. President Joe Biden announced a new student debt relief plan after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against his previous plan. According to The Guardian, Biden criticized the court's interpretation of the Constitution and stated that he would pivot to another law to find an alternative path forward. The ruling dealt a blow to approximately 40 million borrowers who had hoped for relief under the $430 billion plan. Biden plans to utilize the Higher Education Act of 1965 to restore student debt relief and implement a 12-month repayment program to help borrowers avoid defaulting on their loans. The decision poses a challenge for Biden's campaign promise to address student debt, particularly among progressive voters. Biden also criticized Republican elected officials for their hypocrisy, highlighting their support for pandemic-related loans to businesses while opposing relief for hard-working Americans. How about that ruling, huh? It's a tough blow to Biden's plan, no doubt. But I think the Supreme Court's decision is a reminder that we can't just write off massive amounts of debt without considering the financial implications. It's not about denying relief to students. It's about finding a sustainable solution that doesn't put the burden on taxpayers. I see where you're coming from, Mark. But it's also important to consider the burden that student loans place on individuals. Many of these borrowers are struggling to make ends meet, and this debt relief could have provided them with some much-needed breathing room. It's not just about the cost to taxpayers. It's about helping people get back on their feet. I agree, Linda. No one wants to see people struggling with debt. 
but we have to consider the bigger picture. If we start forgiving student loans, where do we draw the line? What about other types of debt? It's a slippery slope, and I'm not sure it's a path we want to go down. I understand your concerns, Mark, but remember, it's not about encouraging financial irresponsibility. It's about acknowledging the systemic issues that have led to this crisis. We need to address the skyrocketing costs of education and the predatory lending practices that have contributed to this situation. Well, Linda, I think we can both agree that this is a complex issue. And while we may not see eye to eye on the solution, it's clear that something needs to be done to address the student debt crisis. Absolutely, Mark. And no matter where we stand on this issue, I think it's important to keep the conversation going. After all, it's through dialogue and debate that we can find the best solutions. Story number four. Australia has become the first country to classify psychedelics as medicines at a national level. With the approval of psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, as reported by the BBC. While hailed as a landmark moment by experts and patients, major health organizations have urged caution. The initial access to the drugs will be limited and costly, with estimates suggesting treatment costs could reach up to $1.30,000 per treatment. Australia's major medical and mental health bodies have expressed concerns about the unknown risks, long-term side effects, and potentially limited benefits of psychedelic treatments. Why, this is a game-changer, Linda! Australia's decision to classify psychedelics as medicines is truly groundbreaking. It's a bold move, considering the global stigma attached to these substances. Indeed, Mark. It's quite a paradigm shift. But it's important to remember that this decision is based on the potential therapeutic benefits of these substances, particularly for treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. It's not an endorsement of recreational use. Absolutely, Linda. And it's fascinating to see how our understanding of these substances has evolved over time. I mean, ecstasy was first developed as an appetite suppressant and then used in therapy sessions in the U.S. until it was outlawed. Yes, and now we're seeing a resurgence of interest in its therapeutic potential. But we also need to be cautious. Major health organizations are urging caution, pointing out that we still know very little about the long-term effects and potential risks of these substances. Right, and that's a valid concern. But at the same time, we have to consider the potential benefits. If these substances can help people who are suffering from severe mental health conditions, isn't it worth exploring further? I mean, the stories of Marjane Bourgeois and Glenn Boys are quite compelling. They are, Mark, but we also need to consider the financial implications. The cost of these treatments could be prohibitive for many patients, and without government subsidies, these potentially life-changing treatments could remain out of reach for those who need them most. Yeah, that's a tough one. But let's not forget, every major breakthrough starts with a step. Maybe this move by Australia will encourage other countries to follow suit and perhaps even stimulate more research and investment into making these treatments more accessible. I hope you're right, Mark. But as Professor Richard Harvey pointed out, psychedelic-assisted therapy is still in its infancy. There's so much we still need to learn. So, while this is a promising step, it's important to proceed with caution. Story number five. Israel's spy agency Mossad has claimed responsibility for an operation in Iran to capture the suspected leader of a hit squad that planned to kill Israelis in Cyprus, as reported by the BBC. Mossad said the man confessed to receiving orders from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps 
the agency informed authorities in Cyprus, where the cell was dismantled. The case highlights the ongoing shadow war between Israel and Iran. Israeli intelligence experts speculate that the public disclosure of the operation may be a response to reports of the U.S. restarting talks with Iran to contain its nuclear program. Iran and Israel have long been enemies, with Israel accusing Iran of carrying out assassinations and Iran denying these claims. The authenticity of Israel's claims about the Cyprus plot remains unverified, and there has been no response from Tehran or Nicosia. Mossad released a video showing a man identified as the main suspect in the case confessing to his planned attack. The man described receiving his orders from his handler in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and detailed his plan to kill an Israeli businessman in Cyprus. The capture of the suspect took place within Iranian territory, but Mossad has not provided specific details about when or where it occurred. Israel has viewed Iran as its greatest adversary for decades, citing threats from the Iranian government and its alleged support for militant groups. Israel has been accused of carrying out attacks on Iranian nuclear facilities and killing Iranian nuclear scientists. The recent disclosure of this operation may serve to remind Israel's international allies of the larger threat posed by Iran and to deter future attacks. So, this is quite a story, isn't it? Mossad, Israel's spy agency, pulling off a daring operation right inside Iran. It's like something straight out of a spy novel. And it's not just about the thrill of espionage, but it underlines the importance of intelligence gathering in shaping international relations. Absolutely, Mark. It's a fascinating, albeit somewhat unsettling, glimpse into the covert world of international politics. These actions by intelligence agencies, while often shrouded in secrecy, can have significant implications on a global scale. They can influence diplomatic relations, potentially disrupt peace negotiations, and even shape foreign policy. Right, Linda. And it's not just Mossad or the CIA. We've seen similar tactics from other nations, too. Remember the alleged Russian assassinations in the UK? It's a high-stakes game of cat and mouse, where nations are constantly trying to outwit each other. But it's not just about outsmarting the opponent. It's also about gathering critical information that could help in decision-making. Indeed, Mark. And it's worth noting that while these actions can sometimes escalate conflicts, they can also play a role in diffusing tensions. For instance, intelligence gathering can help identify potential threats and neutralize them before they escalate into a full-blown crisis. So there's a certain balance to be struck there. You hit the nail on the head, Linda. It's a delicate balancing act. And let's not forget about the ethical conundrum these activities pose. On one hand, they're essential for national security. But on the other, they often involve actions that, in any other context, would be considered illegal or immoral. It's a tricky tightrope to walk. Absolutely, Mark. It's a complex issue with no easy answers. But discussions like these are crucial in shedding light on these covert operations and their implications. Because at the end of the day, they are a critical, if often overlooked, aspect of international relations. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.